0: Galatians 1, 1 through 5, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present, present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Years ago, a young gentleman in his twenties visited my church and after the service, having greeted him, he, he then asked me if he could come speak to me privately about something personal. And so we went to an empty room and then he began pouring out his heart, lamenting just how lonely he was. He kept saying over and over, I'm I'm so lonely. I just wish I had a friend. I wish I had somebody to hang out with and to talk to. And he he just kept going on and on how uh, lonely he was. And he was clearly in in anguish. And and I, and I tried the best to comfort him. I pr- I tried the best to say I can be your friend and there's friends here. And but but more than that, when when I tried to shift the conversation to his greater need for salvation, he would he would quickly. A shift the discussion back to the sorrow of his loneliness. And to be honest, I didn't know what quite to say to him. I was still a young believer at the time. And, and this, is, was, this was my dilemma. How do I communicate to someone that, is, that as heartbreaking as, as his loneliness was, infinitely more serious, is, is someone who lives under the wrath of God without a Savior, when I talked about sin and the gospel, he looked at me like I was trying to change the subject to something trivial. When, when, he, was, when he was dealing with a, a, a matter far graver and more important, it was, a, it was as if we were two, coast, a two a coast Guard officers called to a sinking ship with hundreds of people on it, and he was trying to find a way to save all these people while I was talking about how to fix the broken coffee machine below deck. In other words, we were just in, in two completely different places. We were missing each other by miles. Nothing I was saying was resonating at all. And, and yes, the fruit of trusting in Christ is receiving a spiritual family of God where you're, you're given the, the best of friends for life but that cannot be your primary motivation for coming to Christ. If you don't first feel the weight of the guilt of your sin, then no other factor will draw you to the gospel. Almost 20 years later, if that same gentleman walked through our doors with the same problem, I think my answer to him would be different. I would say something like this. I have an answer for you, but I just don't think now is the best time to hear that answer. But I'm going to go through the book of Galatians, and if you spend the next four to five months coming here every Sunday morning to listen to this text explained and clarified, I think you might find all the answers you're looking for, or at the very least, the the, the right answers to better questions you really need. And, And we're all like this gentleman to some degree or another if you think about it. Every day we, we worry and we fret and we get worked up about problems that are serious, yes, that are, that are hard, but they, in comparison to the problems of the, uh, that the gospel offers solutions to, are trivial. We are worried about, we get angry over, we fight about things, we complain about matters, we get depressed over issues, that are comparatively speaking not that important. We pursue and we chase after and we find value and happiness in matters that are temporal and and permanently unsatisfying. So when we read the Bible or when we listen to sermons, they don't seem very relevant to us because Scripture is speaking to matters that we're, we're just not concerned with. The Bible is trying to deal with people sinking on a ship 100 100 feet away from our ship, and we're too consumed with trying to fix the coffee machine in the deck below. If that was you, if that were somebody that I knew, is there a conversation that I could have with you after service that would convince you that you're just too wrapped up with the wrong problems, that you're chasing after the wrong stuff, no, there is no solution for you unless you understand the right problem. But my hope this morning is that in four to five months, the book of Galatians will be able to reorient your priorities, to give you better answers to the right kinds of questions in your life according to the riches of God's grace. Since I came to this church, we first studied the Gospel of Matthew a record of the early events of the New Testament area. Then we moved to and worked through the book of Acts, the second chapter of the church's life. And after Acts, I decided to go through the New Testament books in chronologi- chronological order or in the order according to when they were written. The first New Testament book written was the book of James. And that's what we uh, we looked at next after Acts. And while the the context and the events James addresses happens after the life and times of Jesus in the Gospels and during the growth of the early church in Acts, James was written before the Gospels and Acts were written. What was the second written book of the New Testament then? It is arguably the book of Galatians. Galatians is the second letter written after James, and it is the very first letter written by the Apostle Paul. If you remember a few months ago, in James, the emphasis was on the importance of a a whole heart, an undivided heart for Jesus Christ. In Galatians, we now move from the heart of a believer to the heart of the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What was the first truth God wanted Paul, inspired by the Spirit, to publicly present in detail to the church of Jesus Christ? The doctrine of justification by faith alone. This book revolves around what theologians call justification. You see, as serious as loneliness is, as troubling as the the problems that we struggle with day after day, much more serious is the problem of how a sinner gets right with the holy God. You might You might not feel viscerally right now that this is or was your biggest problem ever, but the Bible from Genesis to Revelation says that you're wrong. If you're not a Christian, I'm sure you're going through some hard things in your life that you need help with. But the, the aim of the book of Galatians is to convince you that you have an infinitely greater problem, and it's this you're a sinner who needs to get right with the Holy God. If you're a believer this morning, Galatians' aim is to convince you that if you trusted in the gospel in the past to solve your greatest problem, then you must keep trusting in the gospel just as much as you did when you first trusted in Christ. If the gospel was your greatest anchor, if it was your most valuable treasure, the greatest source of joy in the past, when you first believed, then it must be all those same things today and every day for the rest of your life. What is justification? Uh, Wayne Grudem, a theologian, defines justification this way. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven, and Christ's own righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. And while it's true that Christ's righteousness imputed to us is our own, the emphasis in the New Testament is on that legal declaration of God towards sinners, that even though we are guilty sinners, actually we are nonetheless righteous in the sight of God. And it's important to emphasize at the start that this legal declaration in itself does not change our internal nature or character at all that is another theological reality that's what we call regeneration justification is different god issues a legal declaration for the repentant sinner and in that regard theologian john murray makes an important distinction between between regeneration and justification. He says this, regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. And then he writes this. The purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is open for the perversion of the gospel at its center. Justification is is still the article of the standing or falling of the church and we'll explain why in the months to come. When Paul writes this letter to the churches of Galatia, it is this doctrine that is being attacked. He has planted several churches in Galatia and shortly after planting these churches, these false teachers, the false teachers have burrowed into these local bodies like termites And once inside, they began teaching another gospel. And the churches there are about to collapse as a result. So in the book of Galatians, Paul re-explains the gospel of justification. He defends this doctrine.
1: He explains what will happen if the church turns away from
0: justification, and he describes in detail the fruits of justification. The book of Galatians is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Justification by faith alone continues to be attacked today. Scholars like James Don and N.P. Wright have infiltrated the church, and they have tried to redefine this doctrine. And because of N.P. Wright's influence in many churches, if, they're, if these churches are not drinking the entire pitcher of Kool-Aid, they are at the very least downplaying justification's crucial importance for the gospel. Justification still remains the great barrier between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And yet, many Christians doubt whether the divide is necessary. We have a sneaky suspicion that maybe it's not that big of a deal. We agree on the Trinity, we we agree on the person of Christ, many moral issues, we're on the same page uh, uh, we're on the same page as them. Whenever I'm in Christian circles and I interact with uh, believers, uh, I, and almost always, there's no disagreement on the person of Christ. There's no disagreement on the Trinity. But when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, I am constantly amazed on a monthly basis of how careless believers are regarding the very core of the gospel. And so I have two big aims for our study in this book over the coming months. Number one, I I want us to really know and understand this doctrine. There will be times uh, where this will feel like a theology class, like a seminary class, like it kind of already felt in the first ten minutes. Uh, Every week I will discuss the doctrine of justification. I will defend it. I will define it. Because if we're going to study it for a few, uh, four or five months, we better walk away really understanding it. But my second goal is more than just understanding it and defining it like seminary students. My ultimate goal for all of us is so that we would stand firmly on the gospel foundation of justification. I want justification for all of us to be the wellspring of our assurance before God. I want justification to be a fountain of joy and spiritual strength. My desire for you and me is that we would be able to see personally and actively the power of justification unleash in our, in our hearts and change our lives and grow our holiness and increase our love for Christ and others. My goal for this study is so that justification would humble us and cause us to depend on God more. And so with that said, let, me, let us consider the opening verses of Galatians as Paul introduces the letter with the gospel greeting. And in verses 1 through 5, Paul does two things. Number one, he introduces himself. And number two, he introduces the gospel. And so with that, I have two points for you this morning. And they come in the form of questions that the text will answer. Number one, who is Paul, verses 1 and 2. And number two, what is the gospel, verses 3 through 5. Point number one, who is Paul? Who is Paul? Verses 1 and 2. Paul is an apostle. That's, what, that's how it starts in verse 1. He says, Paul an apostle. In the Greek, the verse is just two words. Paul, apostle. And Paul is the same Pharisee, uh, Saul, who persecuted the church, recorded in the beginning of the book of Acts. Paul is Saul's Hellenized Roman name. Uh, this this Diaspora Jews, or Jews who lived outside of Israel, would often adopt a Greek or Latin name that had a sound similar to that of the Hebrew name given at birth. So if your Hebrew name was Saul and you lived outside of Israel, your Roman or Greek name would be Paul. Saul makes his first appearance in Acts 7, where he is described as witnessing sympathetically or even playing a direct role in Stephen's martyrdom. And then Acts 8 begins by describing Saul this way. Saul began ravaging the church. Then in Luke, Acts 9, Luke tells us that as Saul was traveling to Damascus to round up Christians and take back to Jerusalem, he meets the risen Lord personally where he was converted. And get this, where he was then called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was a delegate of the, of the Lord Jesus. An apostle was chosen to reveal direct relate, revelation from Jesus. New Testament-inspired revelation, local revelation. Apostle, the apostles were called to spread the gospel, to be the foundation of the church. Now, the 12 apostles that you know in, the, in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, they were undeniably apostles of Jesus. There's no controversy there. For three years, everybody everybody in Israel saw the twelve with Jesus. There was no question about the authenticity of their apostleship, but for Paul it was a different story. He is not in the Gospels following Christ. In the beginning of Acts, he's an enemy of the church. There is no credible witness who could vouch for his face-to-face encounter with the risen risen Lord on the way to Damascus. So if you're a false teacher and you're in the Galatian churches and you want to attack the credibility of Paul's gospel, what would you do? You would attack the credibility of his apostleship. That's the best move for a false teacher. The, his legitimacy of an apostle is the obvious cheek in the armor of Paul's ministry. It doesn't take a rocket science to understand this. And this is what they do in the Galatian churches. So, in light of that, you just have to love the way Paul introduces himself to the church for the first time. He says, Paul, apostle. Paul is not boasting in his apostleship, he's not being vain. He's just certain of his calling. And the Galatians need to be certain of his calling as well. Because the legitimacy of of the gospel, of his gospel, is riding on his apostolic credentials. If Paul's apostleship goes, so does his gospel. And what was the lie that these false teachers in Galatia were probably spreading about Paul's apostolic credentials? They were probably saying this. You know, Paul received his gospel from Jerusalem. From the 12 apostles. And they were all, these false teachers were also saying this. We received our gospel from the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. And you know what? Paul's gospel and our gospel, they're not the same thing. Paul has taken away important elements of the gospel. He's taken out the law. He's taken out circumcision. So it's obvious. That Paul is distorting the gospel because he's afraid he might offend the Gentiles. And so Paul then next defines in verse 1 what he means by an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul didn't receive his gospel from men. The ultimate source of his apostolic authority was not from men, and hence the gospel he preached had no human source. The gospel was from heaven instead. He was not sent from man as the ultimate source. He was not sent through man. Uh, There there wasn't an intermediate agency that he got the gospel from. There was no mediation through human beings. In other words, uh, Paul's apostolic got a calling, and Paul's gospel, it didn't go from God to the 12, 12 apostles in Jerusalem to Paul. No, his apostolic credentials, his gospel, did not depend on human beings in any essential way or even in an indirect way. Paul was sent through Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul's apostleship and his gospel was through the direct agency of the will of God the Father. Paul reverses the usual order of God the Father and Jesus Christ here, Jesus Christ is first, probably to emphasize is Damascus encounter with the risen Lord. You see, when Judas was replaced in Acts 1, the requirement for his replacement was that person must have met and interacted with the risen Christ. And so therefore, Paul is a bona fide real apostle. He was chosen by God the Father, who look, look at verse 1, who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul says here, I met the risen Christ, who the Father raised from the dead. I have genuine apostolic credentials. Who is Paul? He's an apostle. He was not sent from men, but through, not sent through man, but directly from the Son and the Father. Who is apostle? Verse verse 2, Paul is not alone. He says, I'm an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me, I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only one who knows and believes in the true gospel of justification by faith alone. There are other brothers who have received the same gospel that I preach. There are other brothers who still believe in this gospel. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, do not think you're alone when you subscribe to the gospel of justification by faith. Paul's teaching on justification has been a core doctrine held throughout 2,000 years of ch- church history. First Clement in 96 AD affirms that justification does not come from piety or works, but by faith in chapter 32. Ignatius similarly, similarly writes of the same understanding. The epistle of Diognetus, written in early second century in chapter nine says this, Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, all the people that we're familiar with now because of Michael's teaching in the first hour, even the controversial origin held to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the erudite of Cirrus. Chrysostom, the same. In the Middle Ages, when we get to about 1000 A.D., the justification admittedly gets obscured by moralism and sacramentalism, but the spirit of truth did not fail to illumine the minds to this truth even in this dark age. We see evidence that figures such as Bernard of Clairvaux and Anselm of Canterbury understood and subscribed to justification. Even Thomas Aquinas, on justification, would not have agreed with the Council of Trent on this this, uh, theological doctrine. Doctrines of Christianity, uh, clear in Scripture, uh, clear in the Bible, have been given full and clear form at distinct junctures of human history, of Christian history, beginning first with Christology, then the Trinity, then anthropology and the nature of man with Augustine, and then after that, in the Reformation, the doctrine of salvation, which included justification. The formula of Concord of 1576, the confessional standard of the Lutheran Church, says this, Sinners are justified by God, alone by faith in Christ, so that Christ alone is our righteousness. The Heidelberg Catechism which has been the standard for instruction of children in Reformed churches for over 400 years now, reads in question 61, Why do you say that you are righteous by faith alone? Answer, not because I please God by virtue of the worthiness of my faith, but because the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ alone are my righteousness. Before God, and because I can accept it and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. One more, hold on. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the standard for generations of Puritans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and even Baptists in Great Britain, affirm justification by faith in chapter 12. Those whose God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing in faith itself the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith which faith they have not of themselves is the gift of God. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the the confession we subscribe to, is verbatim the same as the Westminster Confession. In other words, you don't have to be ashamed of justification because you're not alone. There are all these brothers who are with you. In other words, don't be shy about this doctrine. Don't be silent about this doctrine. There are some doctrines you don't have to speak about, speak up about all the time, but for justification, you can't be silent about it. You don't have a choice, because as Martin Luther said about justification, quote, if this article collapses, the church collapses. Justification is a core gospel doctrine, and if you deny it, you cannot go to heaven. After identifying himself Paul writes in verse 2 to the churches of Galatia. The churches that Paul writes to are those of South Galatia, planted by Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 and 14 during their first missionary journey. The churches of Galatia include the churches planted in the cities Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Maestra, Derbe, Perga, and Italia. If you go home today, read Acts 13 and 14, and you'll be you'll read all those of strange-sounding names. And when Paul and Barnabas, when they finished their journey, and when they returned to Antioch in Acts 14, 26-28, to it is during those verses that Paul pens the letter of Galatians right before the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. A lot of arguments with that. I would, I would party to death if I went through all of them, but that's the conclusion I made. So point one, number one, who is Paul? He's an, he's an apostle sent by Jesus himself. He's an apostle with the gospel affirmed by many brethren. In Galatians chapter 1, 1 and 2, Paul identifies himself. And next, in verses 3 through 4, Paul, in summary form, form defines the gospel. What is the gospel? Of verse 3 and 5, point number 2. What is the gospel? Uh, number 1, the first point here in verse 3. Uh, verse 3 uh, first tells us what the gospel gives to repentant sinners. Uh, it gives grace and peace, verse three, that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you would write a, a letter in the Greco-Roman days, the standard salutation, the standard greeting, when we write a letter, what do we say? Dear so and so. In Roman Greco-Roman letters, you use the word greetings, and Paul he. Christianizes the standard greeting and he replaces greeting with grace or grace to you. And grace uh, means deliverance. Think deliverance. Grace means deliverance to those who are in a hopeless situation. And this deliverance is unmerited. You cannot earn grace, you cannot pay God back for grace. You don't deserve grace. Sinners living before a holy God are truly in a hopeless situation. In a dire such a predicament until God forgives them and frees them and replaces dead hearts with living, beating ones. When God saves sinners, he does the impossible for them. Psalm 10735 says he makes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. He does that internally for Christians. He 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 gives them new life. You are born again when God saves you. And he will do this to the world in the future. The entire world will be born again. But the Galatians, they're trying to return to the law. They're trying to go back to a salvation when they used to attempt to earn that grace. And they're attempting to go back to a hopeless condition. And so Paul's greeting here is a standard greeting. You find in his other letters. But in this first letter... This greeting of Paul's is very strategic. It's pointed because the Galatians are in danger of a gospel that denies the grace of God. And so Paul prays in verse 3, You know what I want for you? I want grace to you. I want peace from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want the peace and grace that God gives. The gospel all gives grace and the gospel gives peace. Vertical peace with God because of justification and peace horizontally, eschatologically when Jesus returns. When Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2 and the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased, the peace that the angels are singing about is primarily in the future. The gospel has inherent eschatological end-time connotations, even though they're not always explicitly stated or particularly elaborated upon. And it goes without saying, the gospel does not give an ordinary grace, an ordinary peace. This is a grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, uh, when you receive grace from a a powerful person, when you're granted peace from a authority in a high place, that is a wonderful gift. But imagine a grace and peace given from the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says about the origin of this grace, the Christian force of the grace and peace is emphasized in these words in verse 3. See, when you never forget that grace is the only reason that you have new life, it protects you from mistaking your good works, the evidence of your salvation as the foundation of your salvation. If you're not careful, it is not difficult to experience change and transformation that results from grace and then one day begin to rely on that change and transformation as the basis of your right standing with God. And when that kind of legalism sets in, you begin to approach God with the pride that protests against him when you don't get what you want or you begin to approach God with the pride that angrily demands that God give you what you're owed. When you fall into the quicksand of legalism, Christianity becomes this very bitter pill you have to swallow every day. Brothers and sisters, when you stop Standing on gospel grace, you can quickly grow smug and satisfied with your accomplishments. And instead of blessings serving as a cause for thankfulness, you quickly turn your blessings into reasons why you think you're superior to other people. When grace gets old and ordinary, when grace gets outdated and boring, you fall in the danger of comparing yourself with other people you start thinking you're better than others. Or you get bitter and grow discontent when you think you don't measure up to people that you should be loving instead of competing against. Grace helps you love people instead of competing against people. When you lose grace, uh, we can compare our families with other families, and We can take refuge in the goodness of our children, or or we desperately look for faults in in other families' children in order to feel better about our kids and our parenting. If you get defensive when you're criticized, it's because you, you have forgotten that you're just a sinner resting in God's grace. But when we hold on to the grace of justice, when we bathe in the sea of justification, grace, the power of grace, it gives us the freedom to feel desperate and weak like a child so that we hide ourselves in Christ's righteousness instead of feeling strong and confident in ourselves. Verse 3 tells us this is what the gospel gives. It gives grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, gave himself for our sin, verse 4. The grace and peace that comes from Jesus are rooted in the cross. And the beginning of verse 4, when Paul writes, who gave himself for our sins, this is the theme of the entire letter. You see, the Galatians are being misled into a gospel that adds the works of the law to faith alone because they have forgotten the cross. They have forgotten the significance of that bloody cross. A right relationship with God cannot be obtained by your good works, but only through trusting in the cross of Jesus alone. What did Jesus do to take away our sins? Look at verse 4. He gave himself. He gave himself. Nobody took Jesus' life away from him. His life was not taken from him against his will, kicking and screaming. He gave his life for ours freely and without reservation. There was no uh, compulsion external that he had to go to the cross gave himself freely. And then it says, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. That preposition for, or who pair in the Greek, when used with Christ's idea, has the idea of substitution. Daniel Law is the standard Greek linguist for many seminaries, including including my own, says this the normal preposition used in texts that purportedly deal with Christ substitutionary atonement is upair. That's the word here, the Greek word being used here. In other words, Jesus died and bore God's wrath instead of you. He was your substitute. You deserve what Jesus freely did on the cross. We We should have been on that cross, but the Lord Jesus freely gave himself as a substitute for our sin. What is the gospel? The gospel gives grace and peace, verse 3. Verse 4, the gospel is the good news of Jesus giving his life freely for our sins. And now in the middle part of verse 4, Paul tells us the purpose of the gospel. The purpose for the gospel. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. What age do we live in today? What kind of world do we live in today? We live in the middle of two ages warring against each other. Two dispensations fighting each other like boxers in a ring. There is the present evil age where Satan is still the ruler of the world. This is the, an age where sin, where sin reigns over unbelievers, where the wrath of God is being poured out on a, on a sinful world. But we also live simultaneously simultaneously in the age where the new creation of the church has broken, has broken into this evil age. When God raised Jesus from the dead, this new creation age broke into the present evil age. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit descended upon the church, that was the official day of inauguration. God was telling the world in Acts 2 that these first fruits of a final harvest have come, but more is coming. Jesus has rescued us. From future hell, we've been restored vertically to God the Father. There is heaven in our hearts. There is a foretaste of heaven we experience every time we meet together. Jesus died to give us these first fruits of heaven. but more is yet to come? Jesus died to rescue us spiritually, and he died to rescue us physically. Salvation is a total package in the Bible. Salvation is spiritual deliverance and a physical deliverance but that entire package is a future moment. The church, in the meantime, however, has been grace has been given the grace to live in the life of the age to come in the midst of this present evil age. And so, the Galatians who want to add law to the faith alone—they're trying to go back in time. They're trying to re- to leave the age to come, the age of the new creation, and they want to enter back. Into the evil age of pure sin and the devil's reign. The word here "rescue" has the idea. Think of the Exodus. It's used a few times in reference to the Exodus. The same Greek word is also found uh, several times in the Exodus in the, in the Septuagint. In other words, Paul is saying we used to live in Egypt, shackled by the uh, the sin of, of, of shackled under a spiritual pharaoh but now Jesus has rescued us like Moses. And partially now, but fully tomorrow in a second, final exodus. Your unbelieving neighbor probably thinks that you're somebody who follows Jesus' teaching and example. But Paul says in verse 4, that's impossible because you don't rescue people unless they're lost. You don't rescue people unless they're in a hopeless situation imagine you see a drowning man in the ocean you don't help him by by showing a a youtube video on your phone on how to swim you don't give him information about how to swim when he's drowning you don't say hey i I know you're drowning listen let, let me watch this video and you got to breathe right and you kind of move your arms, kick your legs, kick your legs. You throw him a rope. because Jesus, he is way more than just a good teacher. He's a rescuer. Because that's what we needed the most. Because there was, there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. And because he died to rescue us, we owe him our lives. And this is why Paul ends the way he does in verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel leads to praise. Paul usually ends letters with the doxology. Here he begins the letter with the doxology because every time we bring up the gospel even a little bit like here it demands our worship. Because God did everything to save us. God alone gets all the glory. If we contributed to our rescue, if we had rescued ourselves based on something that we did, based on our own reasoning and understanding, then we could claim a little glory, but Paul ends his introduction accordingly. We love to be our own saviors, don't we? This was behind... The defection in Galatia that was happening. Our hearts, they love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we're always attracted to messages of self-salvation. So Paul begins this letter by stating that, that his message was directly from heaven itself, and, and the message is this. God has done everything in your salvation, and you have made zero contribution. Listen to me. You did not help God save yourself. So give him all the glory. That's how we're going to start this letter, Paul says. So, my prayer is that Galatians would make us people where lives are radically transformed because we're convinced. We have contributed nothing to our right standing with God because we know that Jesus paid it all to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ saving us, dying for us. Thank you for this imputed righteousness to our account pray over the next three or four or five months that that justification would be more than a word that is difficult to understand difficult to pronounce, more than this heady doctrine that we might recite like seminary students. We pray for total transformation as we dive into the glories of justification by faith alone. We pray.